everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've tuned into Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate, and I love New York. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and vibe of our amazing city. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians and artists, and the occasional elected official. On some shows, like tonight's, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood, exploring its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? Sometimes we host shows about an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. In prior episodes, which are available on podcasts, you can hear topics as diverse as American presidents who are in New York, history of women activists and the women's suffrage movement in the city, uh, African-American history in the city. We've talked about the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've talked about some of our great bridges and tunnels, and we've even explored the city's relationship with bicycles, which have been around for 200 years, and also with basketball. As I mentioned, we're also available on podcasts. You can hear us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Tonight, we're going to be traveling across the East River again. Last week, we hosted a Brooklyn neighborhood. Tonight, we're doing the same, but a very different one. This one, Williamsburg, which is right across from the East Village uh, and uh, right at the Williamsburg Bridge. We have two guests tonight. Our first guest is Jeremy Wilcox. Jeremy is a licensed New York City tour guide, a New York native, and the owner of Custom NYC Tours. His small group of private walking tours focus on the city's neighborhoods, its history, its art, and its architecture. He also serves on the board of guides, uh, sorry, on the board of the Guides Association of New York City, its uh, acronym GANYC. It's one of the oldest and most active tour guides associations in the United States. How about that, listeners? Jeremy Wilcox, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're from New York originally. Yes, I was raised um, uh, raised in Queens, uh, where my mother grew up as well, in a somewhat sleepy neighborhood by New York City standards called Richmond Hill, just off the end of the A train, but not the Rockaway end, the Leopards Boulevard end. Oh, okay. Richmond Hill also used to have a Long Island Railroad station <laughs> once upon a time before uh, they shut it down. I actually almost moved to Richmond Hill uh, once upon a time. Um, this was a long time ago when I got out of college. Um, what part of the city do you live in now, Jeremy? Now I live in Flatbush in Brooklyn, just south of Prospect Park. Oh, where? Um, I'm just I'm curious where on where in Flatbush. Um, so just a, it's about like a five or so minute um, walk south of the park on Albemarle Road, um, which is a beautiful little stretch of, of Flatbush. But there's two stretches of, of Albemarle I always remember. There's the one with the fancy houses you always see, and the one with all the pre-war apartment buildings. I'm on the pre-war building side. And actually, we're going to explore that neighborhood uh, and the differences between those two kinds of housing on a future ep uh, episode. Um, when did you decide that you would go into the business or the profession of taking people on these journeys uh, in New York and, and sharing not just the history, but the, but the things that you cover on your tours, Jeremy? I made that leap about five years ago. And... The main reason why is I had this epiphany uh, shortly before that where I realized, you know, I didn't really explore the city that much. I went to my job. I hung out with my friends. But you really don't visit around the city. And this is a very expensive city to live in. It can be stressful in its own unique ways. And I realized all these people here are paying all this money, complaining all the time about New York, and they're not exploring it. So I started on my free time exploring the city, and I just I loved it so much. And then I started dragging all my friends and creating these, basically what I realize now were tours um, every week. And then one of my friends said to me, he's like, you know, you should be getting paid for this. And that's when like the light bulb went off in my head. Well, there are a lot of, there are a lot of tour guides in New York and a lot of tour guide companies. Would you say that, that you bring a special sauce to the way that, that you take people around and share New York with them? Yes, definitely. I mean, there's one of the things that's great about the tour guide business is the variety. But, you know, a lot of tour guides, you know, they do, um, you know, big group tours, you know, uh, you know, sometimes you'll see these 
companies dragging people across the Brooklyn Bridge with like 30 people deep tours um, or do the, you know, these big bus tours. And what I do is I focus on small group tours, whether they're a public tour or private. My maximum group size is, you know, around a dozen people. So it's a much more personal experience. Um, and by doing walking tours with that level of, you know, business, it, you know, it just creates a more intimate experience so I can converse with people. It's not like you, these big tours you see where you've got 30, 40 people following a, you know, a lightsaber or a flag, uh, through the crowds. You know, my goal is to really get people a personal experience and that sort of enthusiasm for the city I gained in my adult years. I mentioned, I want to pass that on to people, whether they're locals or from another country. Hmm. Oh, that's great. And I'm going to ask you about some of your tours a, uh, a little bit later in the show. Nana Williamsburg. Um, one thing that I've always wondered, you know, because uh, uh, we have William Street in um, uh, in downtown Manhattan. And of course, when ironically, the uh, uh, the Dutch were here and then the British conquered them. And then it was a Dutch, <laughs> the Dutch state holder, the stadtholder, King William, who became the king. Um, how did Williamsburg get its name? Was it from a King William somewhere along the line? No, it's uh, no association with the uh, former King of England. So Williamsburg gets its name from a man named Jonathan Williams, who was a uh, colonel um, in the U.S. Army. So Jonathan Williams was a surveyor and an engineer, and he was a very prominent one here in the city, designed a a lot of things. Um, Probably one of the things he's most famous for was designing uh, Castle Williams, which bears his name on Governor's Island. Uh, which is one of the, the beautiful old forts that you've, you, if you've ever explored Governor's Island. And he was hired by a developer named Richard Woolhall, who basically purchased the land that was then sort of known as Bushwick Shore. It was all considered part of Bushwick back then uh, to you know begin to develop. And Richard Woolhall hired Colonel Jonathan Williams to basically survey the land and map out what would become then in 1827, the village of Williamsburg. And Woodhall named it after uh, the colonel, which was sort of a great treat and probably more so than the fort on Governor's Island, William's great legacy in the city. The original spelling, by the way, had an H at the end. Ah, okay. Keeping in line with what, you know, what uh, uh, old English, older English would have, would have, would have done. Mm -hmm. Um, One question I like asking the the historian guests on the show. Um, So much of people talking about the city's history frequently starts with Europeans, with the Dutch. But I always like to know about the local people who were living in specific parts of the city of what became New York at the time that the Dutch settled. Were there local Lenape people living in the area that would eventually become Williamsburg? Yes. Yeah, so the um, the Lenape tribe was there. In fact, it was in the 1630s when the Dutch West India Company actually purchased that land that you know they named at the time Boswick. Uh, which it got anglicized later to Bushwick. So that was all purchased from the local Lenape tribes directly by the Dutch West India Company. So prior to 1638, when that deal was made, um, that was just all Lenape farmland, uh, particularly by the East River. Mm. And were there, and um, were there, did Dutch have farms there between, you know, uh, later in the, later in, in the 17th century? Did they farm in that, in what would become Williamsburg? Yes, and, and you know, um, particularly the, obviously closer to the East River, but um, the original name for the area of again, Boswick, which was later anglicized to Bushwick, that basically translated roughly from Dutch to English to little town in the woods, um, and it really was very foresty up that high in Brooklyn, and so the, you know they they had farms um, there, particularly closer to the water, um, but they just had little homes and stuff there, so it was a Dutch village. Hmm. You know, I'm I'm fascinated by Revolutionary War history, and um, there really isn't much in Williamsburg. <laughs> uh, the big, you know, the big battle happened in Park Slope, and the evacuation, the probably the biggest, the biggest yeah. evacuation of the whole war took place across the East River. But um, I think it's important just to to mention. Um, uh, the, I think it was maybe thirteen thousand people who died on British prison ships uh, right near Williamsburg and Wallabat Bay. That's where the British. Uh, uh, kept a lot of the continental soldiers during the war in horrific conditions. Died of yeah, so they had all these prison ships in Wallabout Bay. Um, and then, like you mentioned, several of them died. And there's a beautiful monument to them in Fort Green Park, which is just south of the um, Brooklyn Navy Yard area, actually just a little bit east of it. And it's the Prison Ship Martyrs Monument. It's this beautiful sort of pillar. Um, and it's just really gorgeous. If you're walking around even by the Brooklyn Navy Yard, walking east and walking around Fort Greene, you can really see it. It's the highest point in the neighborhood at the top of the park. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's this sort of tragedy that doesn't get talked about. I mean, when we learned about the Revolutionary War in school, at least I can speak for myself, we didn't really learn about New York's role in it, which was kind of 
odd being in New York schools, um, how much of the role early on at least took place here. And by the way, the it's not just a monument. There is a Parks Department building off to the side that has uh, uh, an exhibition about it. It's a little bit old, <laughs> but, you know, it is informative about 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 the history and also and and it's quite moving. Um, when did uh, Williamsburg begin to develop? I don't want to say as a neighbor, but when would would have would we have seen development as a town? So that started to happen in the sort of mid 19th century. Um, at one point, when it was founded in the 1820s, it was the village of Williamsburg. Eventually, it actually gained independence from Bushwick and became its own separate city. Uh, but then eventually was sort of incorporated along with Bushwick into the city of Brooklyn. But the real change started to happen in like around circa the 1840s and 1850s when a big wave of German immigrants moved to the area and they really began to develop it, not only in terms of its residential, its early residential infrastructure, but they began the industrialization of not just Williamsburg, but neighboring Bushwick as well, um, all along the waterfront. And you can go back into what's generally now known as East Williamsburg, sort of on the border of Bushwick, and you can see these beautiful sort of mid-19th century brewery buildings and industrial buildings, um, and that's really what Williamsburg began to really grow. Hmm. What were some of the breweries that were, uh, I mean, they, they were old names. When I was growing up, you would still see uh, ads for them on television, <laughs> uh, but what were some of the breweries that uh, that got started in Williamsburg? Oh my gosh, I, you know, the names are actually escaping me off the top of my head, but I do want to mention that if you really want to actually see the greatest concentration, um, you know, you'll see signs if you're walking through traditional Williamsburg closer to the East River, North 11th Street was the old Brewer's Row. But if you go to a street in East Williamsburg, uh, which is Messerol Street, there's a number of old brewery buildings there that are now been repurposed. Mm -hmm. And my favorite one on, it's on the corner of Messerol and Waterbury. You can actually see in part of the architecture that they changed after the Civil War, they have these old barrels built into the side of the brickwork of the building. Um, and it's just, it's really kind of fascinating to walk by. Wow. You know, I've been to Williamsburg, uh, in, including in my business, you know, a hundred times, if not more, but I've not seen that. I'm going to have to check it out. Um, one thing I've always been interested about Williamsburg and its industrial development, the um, Brooklyn was its own city and the, uh, the port and the waterfront of Brooklyn had a big shipping industry. And that um, extended from what's now the lower part of Brooklyn Heights below the Brooklyn Bridge up to uh, what's now Dumbo. And then, and then you had the Brooklyn Navy Yard, which sort of separated Williamsburg from, uh, from uh, the Brooklyn waterfront. Did the same kind of shipping businesses develop or were they different uh, north of the Navy Yard? It was a little bit different. I mean, I think if you were to walk a little bit further east through the neighborhoods, you wouldn't really notice the difference in the feel of the neighborhoods. But geographically, obviously, the separation in Wallabout Bay, but where you had in sort of Dumbo and going down to the Heights, where you had those shipping things, it was a little bit different because it was more direct manufacture. A lot of, say, in Dumbo was a lot of just storage on like the, you know, there were stores there, like the empire stores where they were just sort of um, warehousing stuff and then shipping it out. Whereas up in Williamsburg and then even into Bushwick, there was a lot of direct manufacturing going on. Um, mm -hmm. For instance, most famously the Domino sugar refinery, um, which was founded by the Habermeyers. You also had the founding of the Corning Glassworks uh, before it moved to the town that would eventually um, take its name. Um, and Pfizer Pharmaceuticals was founded there as well. So there was a lot of direct manufacturing. So you would have seen a lot more, say, smokestacks going along the water in Williamsburg um, and stuff like that. So it, was just, it really was more directly industrial than some of the neighborhoods further south. And Jeremy, when would we have seen that industrial development, the uh, construction of those big factories? Did that happen before the Civil War? Did it happen after it? When, when would that have happened? For the most, I mean, the, the largest sort of, um, wave of it happened right after the Civil War. Um, but many of those businesses began being founded in the 1850s and 1860s. But if you look at what are most of considered the historical buildings around the Brooklyn waterfront in terms of industry and manufacturing, they really date back to the 1870s and that sort of boom following the, the Civil War. And most of the buildings that you'll see there date back to that decade. So would we, is it fair to say then that the 1870s was like when uh, Williamsburg became the industrial powerhouse that, that, that it was known as being? Yes, that decade was really the consequential decade for the industry all along the East River on the Brooklyn side. Okay. Um, for well, instance, um, you know, the Domino Sugar Refinery, which predates the Civil War, but really continued to expand. Um, at one point, I believe 
around half or more of the sugar that was refined in the United States was refined at that one building. Wow. Wow. Okay, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Jeremy Wilcox of Custom NYC Tours. We'll be back to Rediscovering New York in a moment. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back. And you're back to Rediscovering New York and our show about Williamsburg. This is actually episode 68. I can't believe it. 68 episodes so far. Um, little did I know when I first started this project. Uh, and our first guest is Jeremy Wilcox. He's the founder and owner of Custom NYC Tours. Jeremy, aside from when um, a little bit of a note, we're each speaking uh, remotely in the middle of this uh, health crisis uh, that we're in right now with COVID in New York City. Uh, and I'm grateful that my guests are coming into us from live feed. Um, so we're not in the studio. We're in our virtual Zoom studio tonight. Jeremy, when um, you are able to take people around, aside from Williamsburg, what are some of the other tours that Custom NYC Tours hosts? Um, some of my more popular tours include I do an Art Deco architecture tour in Midtown Manhattan, focused around some of those great landmarks. I do a Central Park tour about the sort of history and landscaping of the park. And I do a, a fairly new tour that I've been doing the last couple of years about the High Line and the Hudson Yards and the whole redevelopment of the West Side. Well, Hudson Yards is another topic. I have questions about all that, but we'll, uh, we'll leave it to another show. Maybe we'll assemble a panel uh, on that one which probably would be called for lots of different opinions. Um, have you adapted your offerings at all during, during the health crisis now? Yes. I mean, obviously, one of the things that this forced tour guides to do is to be very creative. Obviously, my main walking tours, I, last one I did was March 13th, um, and not sure yet when we'll be able to resume that. But one thing we've been experimenting with is the idea of virtual tours. Um, and those can range from people doing kind of these creative slideshows um, or just walking around with, you know, a, a selfie stick or a gimbal and, do, you know, actually doing a live feed as you walk along solo and people watch you from home. So people have been trying to find ways to stay active and just keep their business in the public's eye through virtual touring. Mm. Well, that's great and very resourceful. And uh of course, you deal with an incredible topic, which is New York. So uh, uh, actually, I'm thinking that that would be a way to build up an audience outside the city because someone could be in Antarctica, literally, and, uh, and log in and, and accompany you on a, on a virtual walk. Yeah, that's something that a lot of guides that begin to talk about is, you know, there's, you know, initially we're thinking, oh, once we can go back to in-person guiding, we won't do virtual tours anymore. But many guides have found that they're, again, as you said, reaching an audience that 
of people who were not coming to New York, uh, for some reasons may not be able to afford to, and you're expanding your audience. Um, if there's a lesser fee you can charge for those type of experiences, it's just, it's a, it's a way to reach people and give them an experience outside of New York. Mm. Well, moving back to Williamsburg, um, aside from Domino Sugar and some of the breweries, what were some of the other big companies that um, uh, established uh, manufacturing and industry um, from the 1870s onward in Williamsburg? So again, you know, in terms of the ones that are sort of still around, I would say Pfizer and Corning Glass and, and Domino Sugar are, are probably the the biggest ones. Um, but there were a number of other ones there. Uh, like I said, it was, it was a variety. There was, um, a, was Dutch Mustard was there. Um, Esquire Shoe Polish was a great variety um, going over there. And these are all names that I grew up with. I'm I'm almost yeah. sixty, and in this I don't know like how many. It's funny when I do tours of Williamsburg, I'll, I'll sort of ask around the crowd, like, how many of you have ever used like Domino Sugar or Dutch Mustard or something like that? And it's all the older people who raise their hands. And that <laughs> I'm not super old, but I can remember growing up with all these brands as well. And um, so, yeah, those were some of the prominent brands that began their life in Williamsburg. So for the first time, a guest has, has mentioned the fact that I'm old. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll let that pass. Uh, about uh, immigrant communities, um, uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize it, but um, after uh, uh, Scottish people came and people from the British Isles around the time from the time of our of the country's founding into the early part of the 19th century. One of the first biggest waves of immigrants were German immigrants who came here beginning in the end of the 1840s after the unrest and the revolution that that took place in Germany. And actually, one other interesting factor about German immigrants at that time is that compared to immigrants from other countries, most German immigrants were literate. Uh, which also impacted the kinds of communities that they that they established. But after the Germans immigrated uh, to New York, uh, be- beginning in the 1840s, what were some of the immigrant communities that came to Williamsburg after that? So from the 1840s through around the 1870s, 1880s, it was predominantly German in Williamsburg. Um, and, and that stayed the same. And you can still see that in a lot of places. I mean, one of the most famous businesses in Williamsburg is Peter Luger's Steakhouse, which was founded, obviously, by German immigrants. Um, family had sold it long ago. Um, but the main wave after that really came in the early 20th century, and that was predominantly Jewish immigrants. Um, and they were really coming after the opening of the Williamsburg Bridge in 1903. They were sort of leaving the overcrowded tenements on the Lower East Side of Manhattan and begin moving across. And for a long time, that was what certainly South Williamsburg was known for. Um, and that obviously changed over time. And once you started getting into Northern Williamsburg, it's a lot of Eastern European immigrants over there, you know, people from Ukraine, uh, Romania. Um, so mix of, you know, Eastern European immigrants uh, after the Germans. Well, there were a lot of Ukrainian immigrants uh, in and around what became Dubbo and around uh, south of the, of, of the Navy Yard. And when I was growing up, Greenpoint, which is right north of Williamsburg, across the Bushwick Inlet, yeah. was, uh, 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 was uh, known as a place uh, that had uh, uh, a lot of Polish immigrants. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, uh, the windows were spotless. That's <laughs> one thing my mother used to tell me driving through. Um, uh, one thing that I found really interesting, Jeremy, um, Williamsburg became, around the time of the First World War, Williamsburg became the most densely populated part of the city. And I'm wondering, how is that? Because the conditions on the Lower East Side, you know, you see pictures of, of um, Jake, that Jacob Reese took and how the mm. other half lives. And uh, conditions were squalid and appalling. How could another neighborhood that was newer uh, and that had some newer housing, how could that have become, how could that have been more densely populated than the Lower East Side was? It was a, a mixture of, of several things. I mean, at the time, you know, you know, particularly after Jacob Reese's writing, that area around the Lower East Side really had a bad stigma. You know, it was you know the worst slum in the United States, so people did not want to live there. If you were you know even remotely upwardly mobile, you know, the way that you showed you were upwardly mobile as sort of an immigrant family was you left the Lower East Side, you left those tenements, and what was directly across the East River and the Williamsburg Bridge from the Lower East Side was Williamsburg, and all this new housing was being built up at the time. So basically people left the Lower East Side for Williamsburg and you had more and more housing being built up, but it was newer stock. It was built to obviously a higher standard with, you know, the tenement laws than the older 18 sort of 70s houses on the Lower East Side. And just basically, again, all these upwardly mobile families, you know, second, third generation, just all flooding across the bridge into Williamsburg all around the same time. 
And the newer buildings were probably also taller, which on a square, square foot basis uh, on the street would mean that there were more people living on that on that footprint of land, even though there might have been not as uh, much crowding in apartments. Okay. Right. I mean, your average old tenement building would be, you know, five or six stories. By the time you get into that era after World War II, the buildings are going up much higher. You have elevators now. Uh, again, the just basic things like indoor plumbing in all the buildings, you know, was creating a higher standard of living. So you could fit more people in a, in a different area. But again, just going all across the Williamsburg Bridge, the reports in the New York Times in the first half of the 20th century would write stories of on Sundays before cars, this is fairly early on, people would just be moving basically wheelbarrows and, and just pushing uh, carts across the Williamsburg Bridge, just moving all their goods by hand. Uh, and it was a sight to see. They would usually do it on the weekend. So you could just go and watch this sort of highway of movement. Mostly going in one direction, but not the yeah, other. Yeah, all going in one direction, exactly. Um, well, I want to fast forward a couple of decades. Um, like many parts of New York and indeed old cities in general in the United States, there was a period of industrial decline. Uh, when did that start happening in Williamsburg? In Williamsburg, it really starts to happen, you know, late 60s, early 70s, right around the time it starts to happen and everywhere else um, with, you know, the beginning of outsourcing of the manufacturing or manufacturing, not just moving to other countries like Mexico, but really moving into the Midwest and away from big urban centers, uh, the creation of highways and, and sort of the, the big truck infrastructure we know as for shipping today, uh, replacing boats, you didn't need to be near the waterfront anymore. Um, and that really began to take off, particularly throughout the 60s and 70s. And by the 80s, you know, Williamsburg was really a shell of its former self. Hmm. When would the last large company have stopped their industrial operations in the neighborhood? I mean, most so when I was growing up, there was still there was still industry there. Uh, but it, uh, of course, yeah, a lot of you know the bigger companies were there later than people realize. You know, the Dominer Sugar re Refinery was there into the early part of this century. Um, and they were, it was still an operational sugar refinery. I remember visiting the neighborhood when that was still operational, um, as a teenager. And, but then by around, you know, 2005 or so, most of them were beginning to close by the time you get to, you know, 2005 to 2010, that five years, that's really when you're starting to just walk around and some of those blocks by the waterfront were becoming ghost towns. But by the early part of this century, there was still manufacturing going on on the East river there. Hmm. And like many neighborhoods, sadly, the decline was not only in the industry, but also in the quality of life in the neighborhood uh, and also uh, in, in income and the safety. Um, what was Williamsburg like in the 70s and the 80s? considered actually a, a pretty rough area. I mean, even areas, you know, down to Dumbo, uh, certainly, you know, neighboring Bushwick was very rough. Um you know, one, the police used to call parts of East Williamsburg and Bushwick the well because of it. it just seemed like a bottomless well to them of drugs and crime. Um, and Williamsburg was not considered a nice neighborhood. It was, you only had one major subway line uh, going to the northern side, the sort of the main residential side, and that was the L train. It didn't go to Midtown. It only went to, you know, around Union Square and the west side. Um, and those weren't considered great neighborhoods at that time either. And it just was not considered a nice place to live. And for those who uh, might know of the film Serpico with Al Pacino, Frank Serpico uh, was actually shot in Williamsburg uh, in, I th in 1972, I think, maybe 71. Uh, that takes us to the last several decades, Jeremy. If there was ever, and, and you know, like so many parts of New York and urban areas in general in the United States, um, we've seen a, a rebirth in Williamsburg. If there ever was a New York neighborhood that you could call hipster, I think it'd be Williamsburg, uh, truly. And that's been going on for the past um, 20 years or so. Why Williamsburg more than so many other places in the city? Why did Williamsburg become hipsterish? Well, I mean, you see this in cities outside New York. You know, once you have a wave of deindustrialization hit in these kind of old neighborhoods where you have big loft spaces and you just have old warehouses, People start opening up rock clubs. They're converting a lot of the old warehouses in Williamsburg got converted into artist studios and loft spaces. One of my earliest memories of Williamsburg um, in my college years was going to this like underground illegal concert that was taking place in an abandoned warehouse over on Kent Avenue over in Williamsburg. And so it just became sounds like one that I went to a couple yeah. of times. So because of the, you know, the, the type of buildings that were there, the, the infrastructure of the neighborhood and, and frankly, once 
they started purchasing these buildings, how cheap they were at the time. I mean, just like bargain basement. Uh, it became an area where artists could reinvent themselves. And even where you had Soho being an art scene in the 70s and 80s, much cheaper than Soho because, again, no one was thinking about Brooklyn in that regard. So it first became known as like a music scene uh, with all the music clubs there. And then the artists started moving in. Um, and then you started having, you know, mom and pop little boutique and craft stores moving in in the 1990s. And it really starts to gain this reputation of this young crowd. Uh, by the late 90s, it's really felt like walking around a college campus. And so it's really was in reinventing itself. And then by the time you get to this century, it almost become a cliche in the way it was being portrayed of this quote unquote hipster culture. Hmm. And we have the Williamsburg of today. Uh, Jeremy Wilcox of Custom NYC Tours, thank you so much for being our first guest on Rediscovering New York on this program about Williamsburg. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to be speaking with our second guest, who's going to speak about some of the more recent happenings and changes in the neighborhood. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media. My guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. And you're back to Rediscovering New York. Support from the program comes from our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212 Four nine five zero three one seven. Our show is about New York, especially its neighborhoods and the myriad textures of our amazing city. There's another great show on the air about New York and specifically about the business of real estate. Good morning, New York real estate with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. You can hear him on voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like the show on Facebook. The title is Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. Imagine that. And, uh, out of the box name. And you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles on those channels are Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, Jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One of the note before we get to our next guest, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about the real estate business in New York, when I am not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city. I help, my, I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. 
If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Well, our second guest is a special guest because she's a colleague and we work in the same industry. That's Elisa Seeger of Triple Mint. Elisa is a first-generation American with parents from Italy and Brazil. She grew up in Borough Park, which is in Brooklyn, and later in Midwood, which is also in Brooklyn. Elisa achieved her Bachelor of Science in Business Management and Finance at Brooklyn College, which I might add is one of the gems of the City University of New York. After a career as fashion buyer for department and specialty stores, she went into several businesses, first a motorcycle shop and then a clothing store. I've got to ask you about your motorcycle shop, Elisa. After losing her son, Aiden, at the age of seven in 2012 to a disease called ALD, that's adrenoleukodystrophy, Elisa fought to have Aiden's law signed into law in New York in 2013. New York became the first state in the country to test every baby born for ALD, and through her efforts created through her son's foundation, the Aiden Jack Seeger Foundation, there currently is testing available in 10 states. In January 2019, federal bills were introduced in Congress to enable ALD testing nationwide. Elisa, welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, a little uh, another little penchant. You grew up in Borough Park, which is where my father grew up, although in a different age from from when you did. What was it like growing up in Borough Park? It was great. Um, I just remember, you know, that was a time when you can just play in the street. We would have block parties. Everyone knew each other. Um, it was just a wonderful time to grow up there, a really close-knit neighborhood. When did, how old were you when you moved to, moved to Midwood? I think I was about eight years old, and it was mid-80s, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, in, in prepping for the show, Elisa, I was so saddened to learn that you lost your son Aiden when he was seven years old to a disease called adrenal leukodystrophy. What is ADL exactly? So ALD is an inherited X-linked disease, which means that it most severely affects boys and men, and women are carriers of the disease. And what happens with it is that um, you have a normal, healthy child until about the age of six or older. We really don't know at what age the disease will present itself. But once it does, it's usually too late to do anything about it. And with my son, he had vision problems. Um, and when we heard of the diagnosis, which is a disease I had never heard of before, he was still eligible for a bone marrow transplant, which is the method of treatment. But the problem is he was a late diagnosis. Um, and that's the reason why I have been fighting for this law, because if we would have known at birth, we could have treated him before it was too late to help him. And the tests now will, will show that, that a baby potentially has ALD or maybe has ALD? Yes. So with newborn screening, um, you have the diagnosis at birth, and then you can monitor and treat before the onset of symptoms, which is crucial to obviously going on to living a normal, healthy life. So the way I explain it is it, this is not cancer, but imagine being diagnosed with a late stage four cancer, as opposed to knowing that maybe you have the genetic predisposition to have breast cancer, for example, where you know you need to be monitored more closely so you can be treated before it's too late. When was Aiden's law passed by the legislature? It was passed in 2013, yes. So um, that was definitely a battle. And, um, you know, I'm so grateful for all the support of our local legislators, Senator um, Marty Golden. Um, Senator at that time, um, who's now the Brooklyn Borough President, Eric Adams, and many others that were um, that joined together to make this possible. Well, Lisa, your work didn't stop on the state level, but also took you to the halls of Congress in Washington. What was it like um, going to Washington to Congress? Was it different from from having uh, made the rounds in the in the LOB? That's a legislative office building, everyone in Albany. <laughs> 
Um, I, you know what? It's similar. Um, I spent a lot of time in Albany, but obviously when you're going to DC, it's on a much larger scale because of course now you're dealing with the whole country um, and it becomes a more difficult process. And I've been working on this for the last four years now. And we're hoping um, that this year something will happen, which it's been put on pause right now, of course, because of COVID and um, picking up the efforts once we can return to some normalcy. And when did you start the Aiden Jack Seeger Foundation? I started it in late 2012. My son passed away in April of 2012. And I knew that I wanted to do something to prevent this from happening to other families because it's something that you live with every day. It never goes away. And to know that there are viable treatment methods, it's just you need to know at the right time in order for you to be saved from this disease. Well, thank you so much for your work and for um, helping other families not have to go through the pain and tragedy that you did with the loss with the loss of Aiden. Um, I'd like to talk about your career. Before we talk about real estate at Williamsburg, I'm fascinated. A motorcycle business? Had, what kind of a motorcycle business was it, and how did you get into it? Actually, but my building, by the way, I live in a building in Harlem called the Walden, uh, uh, and that was uh, started by uh, Michael. I think his last name was Waldman, who was the Zuccotti dealer in Soho before he went into in, into the development business uh, in around 2005. What kind of motorcycle business were you in, and how did you get into it? Of course, so um, Indian Larry Motorcycles, which is in Williamsburg. Um, I started there at probably 2002. I had been a buyer for many years, and through my husband, I had met a buyer. A buyer in um, uh, in, in fashion, stores, yes, in fashion. Okay, got it. And then um, I had met Indian Larry through my husband, who was somewhat of a celebrity on the Lower East Side, and you know, kind of made a name for himself. Um, he was, he appeared on Motorcycle Mania and, you know, some of the different shows that were on Discovery Channel. Um, but we had a shop in Williamsburg. It was first on North 14th Street. We built custom motorcycles, which we still do. Um, Indian Larry, unfortunately, passed away in 2004. But uh, through my husband has continued the the shop and building bikes and what we do is build custom bikes from the ground up. So it's something that each bike is unique and very um, special. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. I, I've, I've never heard of a shop that builds custom motorcycles. I thought they all came uh, off the line at Harley or Yamaha. But uh, yeah. Are you still involved in that business? Yes. Yes. Uh. <laughs> And when did you decide that you were going to go into the crazy business that I'm in, <laughs> into, into the business of real estate? I wonder what people takes us to this business that we're in. How did you get involved in real estate, Elisa? You know what? I've always loved real estate. I was the person that would go to an open house, even though I might not be looking for a place at the time. I was just always um, so interested in design and um, seeing how people live and the different neighborhoods and the buildings and why they were built and how they were built and just yeah. the differences in them. So um, I also had a store in Williamsburg that I closed two years ago, and I thought that that would be the perfect time to start doing this, uh, get involved in real estate and, you know, make this my career and be dedicated to it. And I love it. Well, you're you're a newbie compared to me. I've been in it for 13 years now, so uh, you know a belated welcome to to this business that we're in. Um, did your real estate work start in Williamsburg? Is that where you began? Your most um, of your work pretty in pretty much in Williamsburg and Park Slope, um, some in Flatbush, um, Windsor Terrace. So, yeah, different you know different areas in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going to take, now's a good time to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about Williamsburg and how you've seen the neighborhood evolve and your passions about it. Uh, you're listening to Rediscovering New York on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day.
I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com Listening to Rediscovering New York on our episode about Williamsburg in Brooklyn, not Williamsburg in Virginia. Uh, my second guest is Elisa Seeger. Elisa is a real estate agent in Triple Mint and also has a fascinating history of being business in Williamsburg. A motorcycle, not just a motor, it's not even a dealership, but it's a motorcycle manufacturing shop. By the way, how many motorcycles does, does the business put out every year? How many do you build? Only about six. Yeah, so it's wow. a very run because we do everything in-house from building the frame that's done by hand to painting to yeah so it takes a little bit of time to put them together um the cost is probably a little bit more than buying something off the shelf i'm thinking yes they start yeah, at about sixty thousand and go it's, up from there. how much sorry they start at sixty thousand and go uh-huh. up from there mm-hmm I'm curious, do you have um, uh, enthusiasts who who have become repeat customers after they buy one, they they just can't get enough, and so they come back and maybe spec out a different uh, one yeah, that's a little bit different from the one that you built for them? Yes, we have. We've also had a few celebrities, uh, Ewan McGregor, uh, Brad Pitt has two of our bikes, so... Um, yeah, it's definitely for the the person that's a motorcycle aficionado and want something that's really special and unique. Mm. Well, that brings us to the Williamsburg of today, Elisa, the Williamsburg that we uh, left off of around the year 2000 with Jeremy, our first guest. Um, describe the vibe of Williamsburg. What is it that you like about it? So I've been there probably since 2002. Um, and I just love the mix you know, of the artists and of that type of community that, you know, the music, the artists, the people that are creating different things, even with, you know, the motorcycle shop, I, I like that feel of it. And where the shop is now, it's, it's an old factory that unfortunately, you know, manufacturing went overseas, they would build or they would manufacture um, kitchen equipment and that all went overseas. So now they've rented out different parts of the warehouse to different businesses just to keep it going. Well, isn't that part of the rebirth of the neighborhood? You know, you have um, uh, taking the use of a form of, of an older space and usually also having more entities in there because, you know, where there was a big factory, um, now you might have smaller businesses and maybe even artist studios. Yes. Um, what is it that excites you about Williamsburg? That's not just uh, that you like about it. What is it that 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 gets you excited about about the neighborhood? I mean, I think that's hard to pinpoint. I really like everything about the neighborhood. That it's a walking neighborhood. That you have the restaurants, the little shops, the bars. Um, just that it's always something that's moving at any time of the day and night. And I love that energy of the neighborhood. Well, Williamsburg has been sort of um, uh, hipster-ish from the mid-90s and even today. Um, 
How have you seen Williamsburg changed since you opened up the shop in 2002? What, what kind of changes have you seen? Oh, been a drastic change. I think from 2002 till now, um, the amount of new developments, the amount of hotels, I don't remember one hotel in 2002. Now we have probably six in a two or three block radius. Um, you know, the different businesses that have been created there and, you know, even some of the larger big box retailers that have come to the neighborhood that were not there uh, 10 years ago. So it's definitely a huge change. Hmm. I want to ask you about things that you uh, have liked about the changes in the neighborhood and maybe things that you're not 100% as keen on in, 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 in how the neighborhood has changed since you've been there for 18 years. I mean, I guess what I really have a problem with is that it's pushing out a lot of the people that have had a life there. And what I mean by that is, you know, people that have lived there since they were younger, but now they're getting pushed out because they can't afford the rents and they can't afford to stay there. Or even small businesses, um, as the motorcycle shop, for example, we've moved three different times um, in the 18 years that we've been there just because you know, the rents keep going up and all of that. So I think it's a little bit harder for mom and pop shops to still live there, right? And still, you know, be active in the neighborhood, which I think is what made it interesting to begin with. Well, you know, as, as a real estate agent, Lisa, one of the things that, and, and again, this is just anecdotal, is I've done not done surveys, but just knowing the neighborhood the way I do, um, you know, mo- many neighborhoods you have... Um, uh, evolution. You have evolutionary change as, as neighborhoods evolve and rents and non-regulated units go up, but you, but you still have a lot of housing stock in so many neighborhoods that's rent regulated. It's rent stabilized and there's some rent control. So you, uh, you do have a form of affordable housing and housing uh, retention because people can't be pushed out. But one thing that always struck me about Williamsburg is that there, are ver- there have been very few buildings there that have had six units or more a lot of the housing stock has been row houses, wood houses that have been two, three, maybe four stories. So the number of apartments in those buildings, because they were under six, uh, with few exceptions, never qualified for rent regulation. So uh, even though you hear lots of heartwarming stories about people who've owned houses for decades and they really like their tenants, um, you still don't have the same kind of protection. And so uh, uh, you don't really have rent regulation in, in, most, in, in most of the neighborhood. And I think that becomes more to the point when uh, families uh, either retire or move away or uh, meet another uh, change in their lives and uh, and the building moves on and then the new investor is not going to be as concerned about uh, uh, that relationship that the old landlord might have had with someone living in their, in their home. I want to ask you about people um, uh, who are your clients in Williamsburg, people who come to buy real estate from you. Um, do most of them already live in Williamsburg or do they come from some other, some other part of the city and they decide that they want to make it their home? Most of them have lived there, have rented and, you know, have then decided this is where they want to call home and have taken the next step into looking to purchase something. Um, that seems to be more of what I'm seeing. I mean, there have been some people from Manhattan that have moved, but for the most part, at least I don't think anyone has just done it cold turkey, at least that I've dealt with. It's more um, they've lived in the neighborhood for a little while and really fell in love with it. And has they've decided, you know, this is where they want their life to be. Well, aside from your motorcycle business, uh, what, <laughs> what are some of your more favorite businesses in Williamsburg? What are places that you really love? Sure. Um, gosh, I mean, I love Lilia, which is a restaurant there. Um, trying to think, uh, the wife hotel, which is amazing. Um, uh, of course, Brooklyn brewery, um, bowling, which is right there. Um, gosh, I can go on and on. I like a little, a lot of the smaller stores, you know? Um, yes. So. Well, one of my favorites, I don't know if it's in Williamsburg, technically, it's the New York Distilling Company <laughs> that makes uh, really good rye. They make they make really good gin. They make Dorothy Parker gin <laughs> and uh, also Perry Toad's gin, which um, actually is a Navy strength. It's above 53%. I wouldn't know that. 
um, from a business perspective, is there anything that you wish Williamsburg had in the neighborhood, Elisa, but that doesn't? Not that I could think of. I mean, I think Williamsburg really has a little bit of everything. Um, so I don't think it's really lacking anything that I can think of right now. If someone is thinking about opening up a business in Williamsburg, what, what kind of advice would you have for them that might be different from, from, from any other place that they would think about opening a business in? I would definitely say to make sure that what they're opening is something that is unique and is different, whether that be a restaurant or, you know, if it's brick and mortar retail, if it's something that cannot be easily, um, you know, purchased online, because as you know, you know, I mean, online is where the business has gone. So I think in order to survive, you really need to be something that's different and unique that people just can't find going on Amazon or anywhere else to get it. Mm. Well, in the minute we have left, I have, uh, this is my crystal ball question. I like to ask, uh, Williamsburg has gone through a lot of changes, Elisa. Uh, we've seen so much of them in the last 20 years or so, certainly since you opened up your motorcycle business in 2002. Um, how do you see Williamsburg changing in the next five years? Do you have any sense of that? Uh, any different from what it is right now? I mean, I think that it's still continuing to grow. Um, people still want to live there. It's still a really popular neighborhood to go to. So I think that the trajectory is still there where, um, you know, people will be looking to move to the area. Hopefully there will be new businesses that are opening. I mean, right now, in, since we're in COVID, things are a little bit on hold, but um I, I still believe it's one of the top neighborhoods to be in in Brooklyn. And uh, selling it, you certainly would be selling it to people. You certainly would be enthusiastic about it. Yeah, Elisa Seeger, thank you so much for being on Rediscovering New York. Our second guest on the show about Williamsburg has been Elisa Seeger. Elisa is at Triple Mint Real Estate, and she's also the founder of the Aiden Jack Seeger Foundation. Um, want to thank my guests tonight for being uh, connected to us remotely. If you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook and also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles there are jeffgoodmannyc. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, Mortgage Strategists at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off, I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Halstead in New York City, and whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant for the program is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Radio, 24 hours a day. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com.
Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 